There are certain names that everybody is familiar with. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson would be two that I can't imagine there's not a single person in this room who doesn't know those names and know something about those two men. One of the things about them is that both of them struggled with their views on slavery, especially in light of independence. However, when they died, between the two of them, they would still have 500 plus slaves. There was another man who was a contemporary of them, and his name is not nearly as recognizable. In fact, I would be shocked if more than a handful knew who he was. Robert Parker III. Everybody got him? So if you wanted to know about, more about him, there really isn't much to know. Not a lot of history was given on him. In fact, even today, his grave is unmarked, and they know generally, at least they think where it is, but they don't actually know exactly where the grave is even at. But here's what he did. He emancipated 500 slaves. This guy owned 16 plantations. He was very wealthy. And in 1791, he decided to release all of his slaves. Now, there were some economic reasons for it. It was a period of time where slaves were beginning to cost their owners more than what they were producing. However, in Robert Parker's case, there was a spiritual reason behind it. He had begun taking his faith more and more seriously. And in light of his own redemption, he couldn't see leaving these people in slavery. 500 slaves being released. That is a big moment. There's a big moment that we're going to study today that is the release of slaves. Now, for Robert Parker, this actually is the reason we really know anything about him at this point. This right here is the only reason people are researching this man. Because as I said, he just wasn't known. He didn't want to be known. He didn't want to be in politics. That really was not important to him. Well, the pivotal, the defining moment for the Israelites is the Exodus. It is their freedom. And that's the passage that we study today. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, teach us this morning. Help us to better understand the freedom that you offer what that might mean to us, what it meant to our spiritual ancestors. Lord, help us to walk out of here this morning, change to be more like Christ. Equip and encourage us in all areas to live kingdom first. Every day of every week of every year of our lives for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. 
In his name we ask it. Amen. Please open up your Bibles to Exodus 14. Exodus chapter 14. The crossing of the Red Sea. We're going to start in verse 19. And I want to tell you this story. This story that we're reading right now. This is more God's story than it is Israel's. It will become their identity. It will become who they are. The benefits will be seen by them. But this is God's story. This is what God does. And as you read through this account with me, what you're going to see is God is the one who's acting. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and also stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. All right, first thing God does. Here's what's happening. They have gotten out of Egypt. They're escaping. They're going. But Egypt has decided, we don't want you to go. And so they are chasing them down. But they're in chariots. So they are moving faster than Israel is. Israel has men, women, children, animals. They have warriors on chariots. So as they are getting closer and Israel's trying to escape, suddenly they realize right before them is a giant body of water. There is nowhere to go, and they are coming closer to us. And so the first thing God does, and I don't know how else to say this, he stalls the Egyptians. The angel of the Lord and the cloud goes, instead of leading them, because they know where they're going now, they're standing in front of the water. Like, you led us to this point. Thanks a lot. Now we got to outswim the Egyptians. But the pillar and the angel come from in front of them and move behind them, and it blocks the Egyptians. All right, that's the starting point. At least we got a moment to, to figure things out here. Maybe we can get a start in our swim. But what's next? We're stuck. But God keeps going. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Man, that had to have been just flat out amazing. <laughs> and just imagine standing at the water's edge. And this man takes a staff and he puts it out over the waters and suddenly this wind just comes in and it starts dividing these waters and it builds them up as later on the text will say, as walls of water so that there's dry land. Anybody see some of the pictures from the hurricane where the water had been completely taken out? And I mean, there's a picture of this boat that's just sitting in mud, still anchored. The water just totally removed from this area so that there's dry land. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. 
and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And remember, they've got the advantage here. As Israel's crossing, however long this is, they're still walking, they're in chariots, here they come, and so as it gets closer, and in the morning watch, between 2 and 6 a.m., the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Again, God steps in. They get to the sea, they have nowhere to go. God blocks the Egyptians and lets them continue their path. As they're going down the path and the Egyptians are catching them, God again throws them into a panic, clogs up the wheels, and again, helps them to get to the other side. Verse 26, and the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. There's his third act. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. First he blocks them. Then as they get into the sea, he stops the Egyptians from catching them, and then finally he throws the Egyptians into the sea where they drown. This is all what God is doing. And this is the result. Verse 30. Thus, summary statement, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. They get it. This amazing, miraculous thing that happens to them, when they get to the other side of it, when they walk all the way through, they were able to look back and go, wow. Look what God did, and they believe in him. What does this mean for us? For to be practical, other than a really cool historical account, what does this mean for us? In one sense, It doesn't mean anything. Here's what I mean. If we approach this story and we start taking it and just personalizing it, and we go, man, my boss is going to make me work on Saturday. He is so much like Pharaoh. And I need an exodus. I need him to release me. Come on, God. We're going to demean this story. We're going to turn this story into something that will lose its true value, its depth, its power. 
This is a unique moment in the life of Israel that will never happen again. They'll never be released from Pharaoh, from the Red Sea. This is not going to happen again. And this is a moment they look back to. It's a moment that defines them. But it's not a moment for us to go, well, where's my Pharaoh and where's my Exodus and God's taking me through the sea here. And I pay very little attention to superstars and that whole thing. I just don't follow people like that. Um, Part of that is I don't care. Um, Part of that is probably jealousy. I wish I could be them, so I don't want to pay attention to them. Um, Part of it's arrogance, because I think I deserve, I mean, all these things, but I just don't do it. I don't follow it. However, reading on Yahoo, they have now on their, their top little banner, you can see the quotes from what people say about articles. And there was an article that says, Jamie Foxx doesn't want to meet Jay-Z. Now that normally is not an article that means anything to me. Um, however, number one, my first thought when I read it was, man, I wonder what Jay-Z did, or you know, what ethical reason he doesn't want to meet him, or something, there's gotta be some reason, right? But then there's this comment down at the bottom that says, two minutes of my life wasted from reading this. And I thought, i got to read the article. <laughs> and so I open up this article, and I kind of read through it, and I'm actually really impressed by what Jamie Foxx said. Whether I agree or not, I'm very impressed with the idea. He said, the reason I don't want to meet Jay-Z is I have way too much respect for him. Like, I have him elevated up here, and, and I don't want to lose that. Like, I have so much respect for this man that, like, I know as soon as we meet and we become buddies, that's not going to be there anymore. But he deserves it, at least from Jamie Foxx's perspective. And, and I want him to stay where he belongs. And so, no, I don't want to go meet him. I don't want to be buddy-buddy with him. What God did right here, it deserves to be left in its own unique, special place in the life of God's people. It does not deserve to be brought down into our day-to-day little exoduses, little pharaohs, because we will lose its point. Now, does that mean I should just sit down because I'm done and there's nothing to say? Of course not. I have a lot to say. I mean, I've still got like 22 minutes. Come on. I do have something that I think is vital in this text for us to see that does not lose its point, but does not try to take this giant, beautiful, amazing Exodus story and somehow just make it some little personal thing for my life. Here's what it is. This story could have gone a different way. This story may have turned out differently than what we read. I want you to go back into Exodus, and I want you to look at verse 15. Exodus 14, verse 15. Now, you remember the reading where Moses is saying to the people, Yahweh's gonna fight for us. However, Moses is also a realist. Moses sees the situation. Moses is standing here going, he's in, have you ever encouraged somebody else 
but then you realize you don't actually believe that or you're struggling with it, but you're like, yeah, God's going to help you, Andy. And then you walk over there going, Lord, please, I don't know what's going on. Help me. I'm freaked out. I'm... Moses is really good at encouraging all the people of Israel. But Moses is also very clear. There's an Egyptian army at their backside and a giant body of water right in front of them. There is no escape. They're going to die. I mean, he's got that. And so look at verse 15. Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? What a good question. Moses, why are you crying to me right now? And you can just imagine, we don't have the record, we don't know what he was saying, but you can imagine Moses going, come on, God, you gotta do something. Like all these people think we need to go back and that Egypt is coming and we're gonna die and why aren't you acting? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in a situation, you've got no control, it's a really bad situation, and you're going, God, why won't you God, what are you doing? What are you up to? Why isn't this happening? Why didn't you answer that prayer? I mean, here is Moses going, why? What's going on? He's crying out to Yahweh. But I'll tell you, I think he's crying out, and he has a legitimate reason to cry out. This is a very hard situation. Again, I don't want to demean the situation because probably most of our situations where we cry out to God we don't have an Egyptian army at our back with a body of water in front of us and we're going to die. That's probably not most of our situations. They may be bad, but it's probably not that. But even as we have reasons, right? and I, hey, let me just give you some. Here are reasons why I think we cry out. Number one, we don't have an answer. We need an answer. We've been looking for an answer. We have to make a decision. We don't have one and we want God to give us the answer. Number two, we don't know the future. We don't know what it holds. We are crying out because there's this path right here, and if we take it, we don't know where it leads. And we're going, God, just tell us where to go. God, just fix this thing right here, because if you don't, I don't know what the outcome is. And not knowing the outcome is scary. Amen? And so when we don't have those answers, or when we're feeling a certain pressure on us. When, when we know right there in that moment, I need this job so badly. Because without this job, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. The pressure's right there at that moment. All these things are reasons why we cry out to God, even as Moses cried out to God. Here's what's interesting. God does not answer Moses' cry in the way that Moses would have wanted him to answer it. Whatever it is that Moses is crying out, God, help us, God, save us, God, make this go away, God, whatever. God does not go, okay, Moses, I will do exactly what you were crying out to me for. Instead, he says, why are you crying out to me? Why are you wasting your time crying out to me right now? Moses is paralyzed by fear, by not knowing an outcome, by not knowing a future, and he doesn't know what to do but cry out. And here's God, in a kind of heartless way almost, saying, why are you doing this? And then he begins to speak. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
lift up your staff, stretch out your hand. I want you to notice, as much as this is a story about what God is doing and God's faithfulness, this is also a story about what God's people need to do in response to God. All the way through this account, they are being called on to do something. They are being called on to either lift a staff, and notice it's the beginning and the end. Moses, lift your staff to part the waters, and then put your staff back over the waters so that they will come together. Come on, Lord. You need a staff to do that? Like you couldn't just part them? Israel has to walk through those waters. Israel has to walk on that dry ground between those walls of water and get to the other side. Now, God could have simply just decimated the Egyptians, right? Boom, you're gone. Instead, he brings them to a place and he starts giving them directions. And he says, I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. And the directions, can we all be honest? They're a little weird. I mean, think about it. If, if this is your first thought when you've got an army here and an impassable body of water here is to take a stick and put it over the water, that's not a real good strategic plan. Right? The things he's telling him to do don't really make a lot of sense. And then if you're the Israelites, oh, come on, just imagine this. Walls of water. The wind is holding them up. How loud is that wind? I, I remember like uh, not 10, probably 10 years ago, a massive wind came through North Texas. And in our neighborhood, 80 mile an hour winds, I mean, knocked down chimneys and fences and trees. And I remember getting up in the middle of the night. Actually, my wife woke me up in the middle of the night, freaking out. And I'm going, honey, it's probably okay. And then I listened. I have never heard wind like that before. I mean, it was howling through. What if you had to walk through that kind of wind with water piled up? Who knows how high this is? I mean, there's so many theories on where they might have crossed and even what sea they crossed. But could you imagine the walls of water beside you? At any moment, they could come down. And you've got to walk all the way through, however long that is. They have a reason to be afraid. They have a reason to think, God, this is so weird. Why is it this way? Why are you telling me to do it like this? And yet, what if they haven't done it? What if Moses didn't put the staff over the waters? What if they didn't walk through? What if they just stood there and waited for the Egyptians to come upon them? This could have been a very different story. Right? Here's my point. What God offers to his people quite often comes as his people is doing his will. What God has, the power of God. Notice they only notice his power after they go through all of it. Then they saw him work. It's not what they wanted. Hey, this is what they wanted. They wanted to not have to trust God with their actions. They just wanted it solved, then they could go, okay, God, now I believe. And yet here's God saying, I want you to walk through these waters. 
trust me all the way through. And then they saw God work. Too often, I find myself more like Moses. I'm crying out, I want God to fix it right now. I've got all these legitimate concerns. It looks a little bit like this. So we don't have keys to our home on our key rings because we just park in the garage. And so we just, and we don't really carry keys. Neither Aaron nor I really carry keys. So one day, I pulled up, this is last week, I pull up into the driveway, and I've got a bunch of groceries and things, and I'm getting out of the van, and I didn't go into the garage, I went to the front door, come up, I'm knocking, nobody's answering, I'm knocking a little harder, Uh, have you ever been carrying a lot of stuff and you're getting frustrated, like why will somebody not come open the dang door, then my dog starts barking. And I'm like, it's me. Would somebody open the door? And finally, with one hand, pairing things, I'm grabbing a phone and I'm like trying to text Aaron, open the stinking door. Like, what are you guys doing in there? The dog is barking, blah, 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 blah. She comes to the door and she opens it up. It's not locked, you idiot. Oh. It was really, really frustrating. I really did need to get through that door. I really was carrying these bags, but the door was never locked. I just had to walk through it. That is so often the way that God works. It is not that he is going to give you everything that you want beforehand so that there's no reason for you to trust him in the first place. It's going to be that he says, walk in my ways, and as you're doing it, you will see me work. Right, let me give you a couple examples from the life of Peter. I can just do it from his life only. There's so many ways you can see this. One of the first encounters that we read about Peter is Jesus saying, let's go out in the boat and do some more fishing. Now, here's what you know about the story. They had just fished all night long. They had caught nothing. They are actually fishermen. They know what they're doing. This is what they do for a living. And here comes this itinerant preacher from Galilee who comes and says, let's go do some more. And Peter even says it in this way. Like, we've been doing this all night, but because you said it, I'll go ahead and do it. What happens? Then they see the power of God. That happens to Peter multiple times. Remember when Jesus is walking across the sea? And they all get freaked out, and he's out there, and then Peter goes, I want to come to you. And Jesus says, then step out. What he doesn't say is, all right, well, here, let me lift you with my magical power out of the boat, and I'll just bring you over to me. But isn't that what we want? We don't want him to say, just step out of the boat. We want him to fix the problem first so that we know it's going to be fixed, and then I can be faithful. And Peter, he says, step out of the boat. There's multiple instances in the life of Peter where Jesus does this to him. I want you to act first. Then you can see this. Jesus says it this way. And, And I think I may have a goal of just quoting John 8, 31 and 32 every sermon, like for the rest of the year, because it seems like I keep doing it. But it is so significant. If... You abide in my word. If you are faithful, 
to what I am teaching you, if you're walking in my way, then, that's really important, then you will be my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will set you free. But not when you're not. There's a friend of mine. Um, I have to give just a, a little bit of backstory on her. Um, she actually used to work for me about six years ago. And I will say up front, I did not give her the respect that she deserved. Um, I focused far too often on things that I didn't think were being done as well and missed so many strengths that she had. Her name is Debbie Newman. Some of you will know her because you went to Christ Church. And she writes a blog called Tea Time for the Soul. And Debbie has gone through some serious tragedy. When she writes, she is somebody that you should take seriously um, because she has lost her husband and it was very sudden, it was totally unexpected. He's in his early 50s. This is not like, like we were expecting. I mean, she lost him suddenly. She's had a very tragic thing with her son. Um, she has gone through some major tragedy in her life. And yet, this is what she writes. And it's a very long blog. I'm going to read one paragraph. So what is the point of loving your enemy if they will continue to be your enemy? We know that one of the ways of Jesus, because he says it, love your enemy. I mean, he flat out says it. And, and if, if what I'm saying in the sermon is true, then part of the way we see God is when we actually love our enemy. It's not gonna happen beforehand. Like, let's just say James and I are in an argument and I'm waiting to love him until I see that there's change in his life. I'm waiting to love him until God gives me some massive sign in the sky that says, yes, you can go do this and I'll be faithful to it. Those are the things I'm waiting for. Quite often when it's hard to follow the Lord, I want him to prove himself beforehand. And yet it's often through doing it that we see him. So what's the point of loving your enemy if they continue to be your enemy? Here's Debbie. It is about intimacy with God. When I get over myself and my emotional reaction to my enemy and give my heart over to love, I am never closer to God. I love the line from the musical Les Mis. To love another person is to see the face of God. For me, this is nowhere more powerful than when I catch myself loving someone who has purposefully, deceitfully, and intentionally done me wrong. How hard is it to love those people? I feel a mini transformation of my former being and I get this suddenly, sudden realization that I'm better than I actually am. I feel the presence of God in my heart in a tangible way. For me, loving my enemy with God's help is well worth the peace that overwhelms my soul and the pleasure I sense 
between my sweet heavenly father and myself when I do it. Not before I do it. Not when I'm thinking about doing it and I'm crying out to God in those moments and I'm going, God, change this, fix this, make this different, do something. When I actually step into doing it is when I begin to feel God. That our acts of obedience, that are living in his way are one of the primary ways that God reveals himself to his people. How hard is that to do? I've taught my daughter how to ride a bike. And it was like teaching most kids how to ride a bike. It was hard. Um, but she's a fighter. And, and we got it down. Uh, Aaron and I both are now trying to teach our next child, our son, how to ride a bike. Uh, he's got a little bit more of an attitude. Um, my son really does not like to fail at something. He doesn't like feeling dumb. And when he does, he lets you know. And so last time we were out doing it, um, we, I, I forced him a few times. We're out there on the bike. We're getting and we're trying. And he's freaking out and he's almost falling down. He's doing all these things. And I'm telling him, I've got you. You're not going to fall. I've got you. Let's keep it. He doesn't care. He's getting mad. And finally, when, we get, when I give him a chance to get off the bike, he takes off the helmet. He says, you can get rid of this and that bike. I'm never doing this again. And he storms into the house. He's six. And he's made a decision for the rest of his life that he will never ride a bike again. But this is my son. Um, Aaron gets him out there. They do it some more. They get... I keep trying to explain to him that the only way you're really going to experience what it's like, because riding with training wheels and riding without training wheels are really different. When you actually get to ride a bike and you get to like feel the wind and you get to feel the freedom and you get to jump off curbs and I mean, all these things. I mean, my, my daughter now, she's like, she's, I just wanna ride my bike. Like we don't necessarily even have to ride anywhere. She just wants to ride her bike because it's really fun to do it. But I can't get that across to him and he can't experience it until he actually does it. I mean, even, even when he's on the bike and I'm going alongside him without the training wheels, it's not the same. Like until he does it, he can't experience it. And I'm telling him, look, even after you learn, you're going to crash. I mean, that's why we have knee pads. It's going to be hard. You're going to have wounds, everything else. But it's so worth it to see how amazing that is. Here's my message this morning. Live the king's will. Do what he says. I guarantee you it's going to be hard. I guarantee you there'll be wounds at times. I guarantee you it's a long process, but I guarantee you this too. When we abide in the truth, we can know a freedom we cannot know otherwise. When we abide in the truth, we can see the work of God in a way we won't see otherwise. Live the king's will. And we will see the king's freedom and we will see the king's work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son.
Thank you for all that he has done. Lord, we ask that you might give us the courage to love our enemy. Uh, Not before, but right in the midst of the tragedy. Not after you fix things, but right in the middle of the struggle. Lord, help us to live your way all the time. And then, Lord, show up, even as you did in the Exodus and so many times throughout the scriptures, that we might see our God, that we might know the freedom of following you, and that we might give that to others. Help us to live the king's will. In Christ's name, amen.